there was a horrific speech that was recorded a few years ago. It was a speech given by then defensive coordinator of the New Orleans Saints, Greg Williams. He was trying to amp up his defense prior to a game against the San Francisco 49ers. And he was trying to tell his players about the injuries of the other team, reminding them that one of their players was recovering from an ACL tear to make sure that they went after it. He also, in that same speech, and in probably some others like it, reminded his players of how important a player's head is. And he implored them to go after the other players' heads. He made it very obvious, and he made this incredible statement. If you kill the head, the body will die. In that same speech, he talked about concussions. He reiterated again and again, don't look the speech up. It's very colorful. He reiterated, touching the head, hitting the head, hurting the head, nailing the quarterback in the chin. This recording led to an investigation. He was ultimately suspended. He was suspended indefinitely. It ended up lasting, I think, a year. The head coach of the team also was suspended for the year, and then the general manager also incurred some punishment. It was an ugly scene, an ugly scene, and it just reveals an ugly reality in some sports that whatever helps you win is the end game. It doesn't matter how you get there, just get there. It doesn't matter how you win, just win. It doesn't matter what it takes, just do it. Do it at all costs. If your mind is altered, fuzzy, or inoperable, you are rendered ineffective in sports, in academia, in medicine, and in the realm of your spiritual life. So Satan will attempt to deceive, to distort, to diminish, to devalue, and to demoralize. He'll try to discourage, to disorient, and to cause doubt. And God tells us to put on the helmet. Put on the helmet of salvation. It will aid you, it will protect you against the onslaught of Satan who wants to distort your mind. You have the rest of the uniform on, but don't go out without your helmet. The Roman soldier's helmet was made out of leather. It was reinforced with various types of metal. It protected the head from various types of attack. If we simply focus on the image instead of the reality, we will have done you a disservice. The armor is illustrative. It is a carrier for the message that God is trying to convey to us about being ready 
for the onslaught of the evil one. If our focus is on the helmet or the breastplate or the the girdle or the shoes or the shield or the sword, our focus is in the wrong direction. It's the spiritual armament that God has provided for us that is at the absolute essence of this call. God has already told us about our need for embracing the entirety of the body of foundational doctrine. Gird up the loins of your mind, is how Peter would say it, but to put on the belt of the truth. God has already told us of our need to embrace our only means by which we will stand confidently before our final judge. He tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is the righteousness acquired by Jesus Christ and then granted to us as believers in Jesus Christ. He has prepared us to stand not upon our own goodness or our own church-going tradition, but He has told us that we are to stand upon the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that Gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims to us that we have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He has prepared us to extinguish the attacks of the kingdom of darkness by holding on to our faith in God as is revealed in the Bible. We must remember that this faith is a grace gift from God. And now he tells us to take up the helmet of salvation. You already have on your girdle. Did everyone get on their girdle this morning? You already have strapped on the breastplate. You already strapped on, fastened on to your feet, the shoes. You've taken up the shield. You're grabbing the helmet. You're going to put it on so you can then grab the sword. We're arming ourselves. We're fastening on the helmet of salvation. Remember, he is writing to believers. He's writing to believers. So he is not telling us to come to faith in Christ for our salvation. That has already been dealt with. He is telling us to fasten on the salvation that we've already received. We've already received the salvation. Live in the salvation that God has granted to you. Don't try to earn this salvation. He's given it to you. Strap it on. Stand confidently in it. He uses, back in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, he uses the Greek word soterios. From that word we get our English word soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. It is a rather lovely word. Soterion. It is a rather lovely word. It is a rather lovely subject. I might say, it is the grandest subject that I know. It is the most glorious subject upon which 
we must meditate of this subject of salvation. There have been books written. Poems written. And songs sung. Of this salvation, our minds will be occupied and our mouths will be occupied from this day forward and forevermore. The grand subject of salvation, also called redemption. In preparation for our time together this morning, I looked up every usage of the Greek term soterion, and many of the cousin words of this, and I will tell you that it was a feast for my soul. I can tell you honestly, as I read verse after verse of God's inspired word, as I read them, I felt my heart strangely warmed. The subject of salvation should be a banquet for our souls. I want you and I this morning, I want us to look at several of these passages. And I know, I know that through this meditation upon God's Word, your soul will be stirred and your soul will be fed. And so we are in Luke chapter 1. And before we read it, so I, I gave you a football illustration already, and now I'm going to give you a food illustration, okay? It's like my two favorite other than the Bible subjects, my family, football, and food. As I was, as I was doing this, as I was looking this up, and I'm thinking, man, and we're going to look at a number of passages in the book of Luke, right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he has absolutely overwhelmed us with this grand subject of salvation. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about my wife's pancakes. Now, I want to tell you right now that my wife's pancakes are better than yours. And they're better than anyone's pan any other pancake you've ever had. And as I was thinking about that, it brought me back to the 80s in the, in the Dunkin' Donuts commercials. Do you remember? They started making muffins. And they show these um, older ladies eating the muffins. And there's this one scene where this lady says, they're even better than yours, Wanda. Which is stuck in my head. Since the, how, how, how effective of a marketing campaign was that, that in the 80s, this commercial went out, and I'm still thinking about it in 2017, 2018. Mess, messed up on what year we're in. I, I was so excited about it. My wife's pancakes are better than your pancake. And, and listen, if you want to contest it, you have to bring the hard evidence my way. That's a challenge that I bring to you. My wife's buttermilk pancakes are glorious. I happen to like chocolate chips in my pancakes. You might not like chocolate chips in your pancakes, but I do. And I don't want my pancakes dotted with chocolate chips because if some is good, more is better. So we load those babies on there when I have anything to do with it or if my daughter has anything to do with it. We load those chocolate chips on there and it's just 
so wonderful. It's delicious. Like, there's nothing like this. There are other things that are great. I like chicken parmesan. I like steak. I like all kinds of stuff. You know this. But these chocolate chip buttermilk pancakes that my wife and daughter make are just off the charts good. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, this is, this is the chocolate chip pancakes of opening God's word. It's so good. It is littered with this overwhelmingly delicious food. Now, you might not like chocolate chips, and you might not like pancakes. Maybe you like kale. So you can just change the illustration in your mind. And you can say, this is like eating a whole giant plateful of kale. Or whatever your thing is. It doesn't matter. Think of your favorite thing and say, this is a feast. And that's what Luke does for us as he opens his gospel. He is introducing us to John the Baptist. He's introducing us to what John the Baptist is going to accomplish. He introduces us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he introduces us to what Jesus would accomplish. He is littering the beginning of his gospel with the glorious salvation message that is ours to meditate on. And this is the grand subject of the helmet. The helmet of salvation. And so let us look, please, at this glorious beginning to a glorious gospel. The curiosity concerning John the Baptist started right at his birth. Look at verse 63 of Luke chapter 1. You'll remember that Zacharias was was given this information about his wife being pregnant, and he was like, how can this be? And, And the angel said, well, because you didn't believe me, no more talking for you. Remember that? There was a reason for that. It wasn't just like a disciplinary issue. God was doing something. And here's what we're going to see. His son is born. What are we going to name him? Verse 63. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. In other words, John? There's no Johns in the family. Your name's not John. Why are you calling him John? Verse 63. For immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. So now we're spreading this concept. All their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. So we're spreading this whole message around. John the Baptist is coming. This this unique person is coming. Verse 66. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying... What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And then we have this proclamation, this prophecy from Zechariah, but it's not from Zechariah. And that is absolutely evident from the very start of this prophecy. Verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was what? filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us 
in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You will go before him to give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Oh man, look at this passage. John the Baptist is born, and God gives utterance to, to uh, John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, and he's letting us know. He, what is his job? He's going to prepare the way for the salvation of God to be revealed. What is the salvation of God result in? Forgiveness of sin. Who is this for? It's a light to all. Take a look at the next chapter now, chapter 2. This forgiveness of sins arises from John the Baptist preparing the way for the people to embrace the salvation of God offered through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As you come to chapter 2, Jesus has been born. The angels and the shepherds are praising God. And then in verse 22, we see Jesus coming to the temple to be presented. In verse 22 it says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. They were, they, were, they were giving him to the Lord. This was their, their responsibility. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation, comfort of Israel. Listen carefully. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Kurios, Lord's Master. Christ, Christos, Anointed One. He would not die until he had seen the Master's Messiah. He would not die until he saw the consummation, the consummation of the promises that God had been making about a, a, a deliverer that would come. This is what God revealed to him. Verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. Now, he's filled with the Spirit, yes? Very evident from the text. So the message we're about to hear is another message from God. Just like the message that came out of the mouth of Zechariah was a message from God, the message that comes out of the mouth of Simeon is a message from God. He is filled with the Spirit, and here we hear from God an utterance through a man. Here's what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes... My eyes 
have seen your, what does it say? My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. My eyes have seen your salvation. What did Simeon's eyes see? He saw Jesus. Jesus equals salvation. Jesus equals soteria or soterion. Jesus equals salvation. Jesus is the Redeemer. Simeon, he's empowered by the Spirit and he proclaims Jesus is the Savior. He is a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people, Israel. Take a look a little further now at Luke chapter 3. Are we seeing this salvation emphasis at the beginning of Luke's gospel? I find it to be glorious. I, I trust you do as well. We come into Luke chapter 3. Starts with some details about history letting us know that what's being recorded by Luke, it takes place in real time with real people. We're going to cut into the middle of this and look at verse 3 and following. And he went in all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So who's the he in verse 3? John the Baptist is the he in verse 3. He went around... In the wilderness, in this area of Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, turn, 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 turn from what? Your sin. Turn to whom? Jesus. Why turn to Jesus? Because He is the Savior. He's the Lord's Christ. He's the Anointed One. He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. This is His message. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is, this is great. He quotes Isaiah. My job, my job, Isaiah says, is I am a road worker. The king, the king is a coming. And if the king is coming to this town, we're going to make sure that the gutters on the side of the street are cleaned out. And we're going to make sure when he rides in his chariot down the street, he's not hitting potholes. We're going to make sure it's all leveled out. The trash is gone. He's not going to have to go up a hill and down a hill. We're going to make sure he has a level entryway. We're going to make sure his entryway is clear and plain and everyone can see him. This is what John did. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. The, the Messiah came. The Savior. The Soterion the salvation of God. 
entered. This is what John the Baptist prepared for because this is what God prepared people for and then the Savior came. In verse 6 it says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John the Baptist's ministry was all about preparing people to see the salvation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 28. Acts 28. It's on page 937 of one of our church Bibles, 937. Acts chapter 28. Here we're cutting into another context, seeing Paul is headed for a trial. He's headed for a trial. He's been charged with preaching contrary to the law and contrary to the Roman government. And in the midst of this, Paul tells us what his ministry was. Paul tells us what his ministry was. We're in Acts 28, we're going to pick up the context right in verse 23. It says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, two things, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some of them were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to you, or to your fathers, that uh, through Isaiah, the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. And turn, turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. What has been sent to the Gentiles? This salvation of God. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years in his, at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. What was he doing? Verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. All right, in verse 23, he tells us what his ministry was. What was he proclaiming? The kingdom of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ. He tells us in verse 31, the two elements of his ministry. He was expounding on the kingdom of God and proclaiming salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 28, he makes it explicit. He says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God. What salvation of God? Who is the salvation of God? There's only one answer, folks. It's Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the salvation of God. He is the soterion. He is the grand subject of salvation. You want to read a book about soteriology? There are plenty of good ones. So long as they keep pointing you to Jesus and the Bible, 
then those things are going to have some good truths for you to, to meditate on. Of course, we always have to filter everything, make sure that everything that's being said in whatever this theological book is, is in accordance coming out from the text of Scripture. But Jesus is the grand subject of salvation. We're talking about putting on the helmet of salvation. We're talking about putting on... You got it. So hard to figure out. Putting on Jesus. All right. The salvation of God has come through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, this is beautiful. It says, for the grace of God, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You see it on the screen? Take it in for a moment. The grace of God has appeared. The Greek term, epiphany. There's a manifestation of the grace of God. And what does this grace of God that appeared, what does it bring? Salvation. Salvation bringing. I have a long quote for you from William Hendrickson. It's great. It's going to be on two separate slides, okay? That's how long it is. And I actually had to make it down to 70 font instead of 85. So it's long. I want for you to meditate on this for a moment because he's pointing us in the right direction. Upon those sitting in the darkness and in the shadow of death, the grace of God has suddenly dawned. It had arisen when Jesus was born, when words of life and beauty issued from his lips, when he healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, cast out demons, raised the dead, suffered for man's sins, and laid down his life for the sheep in order to take it again on resurrection morning. Thus, grace had shed on the world Christ's holy light and had chased the dark night of sin away. The Son of Righteousness had arisen with healing in its wings. The grace of God had appeared, saving for all men. Everywhere else in the New Testament, this word saving, when preceded by the article and used as a noun, means salvation in the spiritual sense of the term. Hence, all here, excuse me, hence also here in Titus 2.11, the meaning is God's grace made its appearance salvation bringing. Grace came to rescue man from the greatest possible evil. Oh, this one was hard to swallow. Grace came to rescue men, man from the greatest possible evil, namely the curse of God upon sin, and to bestow upon him the greatest possible boon, namely the blessing of God for soul and body throughout all eternity. The grace of God appeared salvation bringing. And that appearance of God salvation bringing, that grace of God appearance salvation bringing is in the person 
of Jesus Christ. We're talking about putting on the helmet of salvation. And salvation, as you well know, and if you don't well know, you need to well know, salvation has three tenses, past, present, and future. The past tense of salvation, there was a point in time in which we came to recognize our sin as condemning us. We turned to Christ and received the salvation of God. We call that justification. The past tense of salvation, we have been justified. There is a present tense to salvation. We call that sanctification. I am being saved. And we also recognize a future tense to salvation. I will be saved. We call that glorification. You can view it this way. In the past, I have been set free from the penalty of my sin. In the present, I am being set free from the power of sin. And in the future, I will be set free from the presence of sin. God has saved us, is saving us, and will save us all in accordance with one, one gift. The gift, the appearing, the grace appearing of We've been told in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14 to put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its the lusts thereof. Okay? We've been told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we have the Spirit and the Spirit teaches us and, and the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness unto him. But the Spirit teaches those who are spiritually, teaches them spiritual things. And it tells us in verse 16 that we have, we have the mind of Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, God tells us, to put on the helmet of of salvation, to protect against the distortion, the disillusionment, the discouragement of the mind. He tells us the solution is to put on Christ. Put on the salvation that you have received, that is currently saving you, and that will ultimately save you. Our salvation is found in no one else and in nothing else except for Jesus Christ alone. He is the soterion, the salvation of God. He has appeared, salvation bringing. So we're in this desperate war. And your resources and my resources are not sufficient I cannot handle the onslaught of the evil one or his minions. I cannot do it. But God has equipped me with his armor. Not my armor, his armor. It's not my salvation, it's his salvation. It's not my truth, it's his truth. It's not my faith, it's his faith. It's not my righteousness, it's his righteousness. It's not my gospel, it's his gospel. It's not my sword, it's his sword. It's all His. Will His defense of me fail? Satan is too much for me, and he's too much for you, and he's too much for us. But he ain't got nothing on the Almighty One. And 
been equipped. Put on the helmet of salvation. The salvation that has been promised from the beginning and illustrated and foretold through thousands of years arrived in the incarnation. God the Son took on flesh, fulfilled the plan of God to redeem a people for God through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus Christ has provided for our salvation. How is this salvation received? This is how we, what we must answer in the next couple of moments. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 for a moment. Romans 5. Just, you're in Acts 28. You're just taking a right a few pages. You'll find it on page 942, one of our church Bibles. The salvation of God has appeared in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, am told to put on that, that salvation protection to, to rest my mind in what God has done already. In Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, very simple. It's as simple as can be and profound as can be at the same time. Look at what he says. We're going to read the verses and then we're going to come back and, and look at them for just a couple of minutes. The Bible says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. All right? So, here is your grammar lesson for the day. And if you choose to shut down because I said the word grammar, you are being a fool. Yeah, I actually wasn't joking. All right. You ready now? In verse 1, Paul says, we have been justified. He uses what's called the aorist tense. The aorist tense is a past tense. But it's what's called punctiliar. It's like a period. It happens at a point in time. Okay? We have been, have been, at a point in time, justified. Make sense? All right. Simple. He goes on and says, we have been justified by faith. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He uses the present tense. The present tense means now, but the present tense isn't punctiliar. It's linear. It means, okay, we have continuously peace with God. It keeps on going and going and going. Because we have been justified at one point in the past by faith in Jesus Christ, we currently and forevermore will have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are we following so far? Verse 2. Through Him... We have also obtained, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Okay, so now we have, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. The have obtained, 
have obtained access. You see that? That is a perfect tense. You really wanted this one. This is great. This is also a past tense, but unlike the aorist, which is a moment in time, the perfect tense is something that took place in the past that keeps on going. It's like it has the, the, the concept of both the aorist and the present all combined into one type of a tense. So because we have obtained access through justification, through faith in him, because that happened in the past, that means that access remains to this day. That's what the perfect tense tells us. He also uses the perfect tense in the, in the phrase, in which we stand. So we are continuously standing because of this concept of trusting Christ. We have this constant access and standing because of the grace of God. Are you following me still? All right. And then he concludes verse 2 by using the present tense again. Look at what he says. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We are rejoicing. Present is we continually rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, at the end of verse 1, you need to notice this phrase. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see it? At the beginning of verse 2, we need to see this phrase. Through Him. Who's he talking about? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 1 ends with Christ. Verse 2 begins with Christ. He's the subject. When we look at this passage, both of them are letting us know what the instrumentality to receiving this gift is. In verse 1, by faith. In verse 2, by faith. Let's read it again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We conclude this little small subject by by saying this. Faith in Jesus Christ results in justification and thus we have peace. Faith also, faith in Jesus Christ results in access to sustaining grace and thus we rejoice. Are you seeing this? Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 is another nugget. You will never, ever exhaust Romans 5, 1 and 2. He's talking to you and I about what took place through Christ and its results. I have received justification. It's a gift from God. It took place in the past. And now because of that justification that took place in the past, my peace with God remains forever. It's secure. Because I have received Christ as my Savior, because I've trusted Him by faith, I have access into the grace of God, that salvation of God, or or that grace of God that is salvation bringing, I have received it. And thus, I can rejoice now and forevermore in the hope of the glory of God. And consequently, and we don't have time to, to meditate on it, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he talks about putting on the breastplate of hope and love, of faith and love. And then he says, and as a helmet, as a helmet, the hope, the hope of our salvation. The word hope isn't like, boy, oh Lord, I just hope that I've done enough. 
Oh, Lord, won't you please just make up for that difference of what I did not attain? That is not, that is not the Bible's definition of hope. The word hope in the Bible is a confident assurance. When he says, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, he's telling us that we rejoice in the confident assurance that we will experience, be in, in, in the presence of forever the glory of God. And when he tells us to take up the helmet, which is the hope of our salvation, it's the confident assurance of our salvation. The, the devil would like nothing more than to have you spend your entire life twisting in the wind, wondering if you'll make it. And if you are counting on you, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're not going to make it. Solved. No more twisting for you. You'll close your eyes one day. You will die. Everyone dies. It's appointed in a man once to die. And guess what happens after that? After that, the judgment. And if you trust in anyone or anything other than Christ alone, you will wake, wake up, you will face that judge, and he will cast you immediately into hell. That's a fact. Believers, believers are told to apply the helmet of salvation. The enemy accuses. The enemy lies. The enemy deceives. The enemy hates. The enemy, listen to this, condemns. When the enemy condemns, I want to tell you what God says. I'm going to do it through asking you some questions. God says, in theory, what have I done? What have I done? And through whom have I done it? What have I done? And through whom have I done it? God asks that very same question in the book of Romans, chapter 8. Remember... Who is he who condemns you? Who is he who condemns you? Do you know there's only one person? There's only one person that can condemn you? Did you know that? The only one who can condemn you is the one believer who's trusted in Christ, is the one who has already redeemed you. The only one who can condemn you is the one who laid his life down as the soterion, salvation of God. So the question you have to answer, that I have to answer is, have I trusted Jesus Christ as my only means of eternal life? Have I come to faith in Christ alone? If I've trusted Christ alone, alone, which if you add John the Baptist back into this mix, and I think we have to because that's the subject, the salvation of God, he tells us we have to turn from our sin in our way and turn to the salvation of God. Have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ? If you have, the only one that condemned you is the one who already redeemed you. Put on the helmet of salvation. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, I tell you today, 
You must turn from your sin, and you must turn to Christ. That is the gospel call for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your word. Minister your grace. I pray for anyone here that's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that even today they would do this, that you would open their eyes. Father, I also pray for each one of us who believe that we would not ever allow the wicked one to deceive us and to cause us to think more of ourselves than we do of our Savior. Help us to rejoice now and forevermore in hope because we have been granted access into the grace by which we currently stand. Thank you for these truths. Drive them deep into our souls that we would be ready for the onslaught and that we would rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.